This is the Square Peg Podcast. And Cleveland, Ohio-based quartet, The Vums, officially getting us moving and rolling into the season with their hit Black Star. Check them out wherever you stream your music and on most social media platforms. I know I've come to say this quite often, but I'm actually really excited about this episode for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, my guest today is the vice president of baseball administration slash assistant general manager for the Kansas City Royals, who compete in the central division of Major League Baseball's American League. Now, he's been with the Royals for 23 years now, having held numerous positions, and he actually seems to have spent his entire adult life working in baseball. We have a lot to discuss, Jin Wong, and honestly, I don't know how we're going to fit it all in in one episode. But first, let me say it's great to have you uh, talk to you, and after all these years, and great to have you on the Square Peg Podcast. Welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate the time, and I uh, look forward to uh, catching up. Yeah, and you know, the timing of this, of course, you guys are just about to wrap wrap things up. Um, you catching up on sleep from a long season? Yeah, you know, this, well, first of all, we, my wife and I, and, and I have two kids, um, nine and ten right now, we, we got a puppy last September, so we've had her for about a year now, so that's like having a newborn baby, so... Sleep is is hard to find at times with a with a new dog. Well, I I would hope uh, you know after a year things have gotten a little bit better, but um, you know I've it's it's been a while since I've had a puppy, but um I know you know some time ago you and I kind of messaged a little bit and uh, you had actually one thing I remember is you said that in the job that you do and the position you have, uh, it's the off season that's actually your 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 busy time and we'll we'll kind of get into that, but you know you have a fancy sure. title. You have a fancy title. Can you describe what part of management is actually your responsibility, and um, what does your job entail? If you uh, wanted to make it really short and sweet, uh, you can consider me the money and rules guy. So I typically will negotiate and um, have a lot of input on all our contracts at the major league level for our players. And additionally, we'll help with uh, player contracts and draft in the minor leagues as well with six-year free agent signings. Uh, and then when you're talking about the rules side of things, it's managing the roster, what we can and can't do with a player, uh, when the player can be sent out on a rehab assignment, if that player is injured, how long he's going to be out, how that affects our, our roster, which is 40 overall but then uh, 26 active at the major league level, and in September is 28. So managing that stuff, uh, making sure we're all on the same page, and um, is a big part of my responsibility. Now, that's interesting that you mentioned the 40, because I know that the, everybody, anybody who follows Major League Baseball knows you, you hear the 26-man roster, and of course in September you can bring people up uh, from the minors as kind of a tryout for next year. Um, but you talk about 40. Now, who are the other, who are the other 14? Well, we have players on option in the minor leagues, whether they're at, uh, typically they're at AAA, AA, some can be in A ball. Um, those are the other 14 during the regular season. And then you have other guys that are on the injured list, whether it's a 10 day for position players or 15 day for pitchers. And then you have another injured list, which is a 60 day injured list. Uh, players have to be after a minimum of 60 days, but they don't count towards the 40 man roster. So, when those guys are ready to go on rehab assignments, uh, when they're ready to come back, and we are at 40 on our 40-man roster, we'll have to make room for those players to come back. So that's where we'll get involved and try to figure out who that player that's being reinstated is going to uh, take the place of on the roster. So 
that, that in a nutshell, that that's your forty players. In a nutshell, uh, you know, you did say something about rules and making sure you what, doing the things you can do with players and, and things you can't do. Is that per the seed the collective bargaining agreement, or is that separate? Is that something that just comes down from the league? Uh, well, there's a bunch of documents that we have to be uh, cognizant of. One is a collective bargaining agreement. It basically uh, details everything as it relates to employment of a player. Um, benefits, uh, allowances when they're on an assignment. And then you have another big document that's called the Major League Rules, which you actually can and can't do with players uh, from a transaction standpoint. And those two sort of go hand in hand um, with with what we can and can't do with players. It's, I sound repetitive, but um, really making sure we're up to speed on those two documents if they're changes. Uh, certainly this last spring we had a new CBA that was negotiated between the uh, league and the players association and there are changes associated with that that we had to get up to speed with really quickly prior to getting into a, a late start spring training so well you know unlike the NFL and the NBA uh, major league baseball does not have a salary cap right correct so and you guys being a kind of a small market team like Pittsburgh, Milwaukee, Tampa, uh, you know, some of the others. Uh, does that, I mean, how do you compete? I know you guys have had some success a few years ago, but what do you do? What is What does a small market team uh, do to compete with the, the Yankees and, the, and the, 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 the Cubs and Red Sox and Dodgers and, you know, those, those big markets uh, that have, seem to have unlimited, unlimited budgets and they can sign people to $400 million? Actually, you know, I never sure. thought about this, but I know San Diego is a, a small market. I don't know what their what how much money their ownership has. But that's a small market team, and they did they just signed somebody from from uh, the Nats for you know an ungodly amount of money. How do you how do you approach that? I mean, how do you what's the what's the strategy there? Well, I mean, from our standpoint, we certainly can't make uh, or use that excuse me as an excuse being a small market team. You know, we are. Uh, charged with the responsibility of trying to figure out how to win given our market size, given our revenue streams, uh, given the revenue sharing dollars we get from the league. Uh, a friend of mine that's uh, in media um, made this sort of comparison a couple of years ago with uh, a f- another friend that's an engineer with us. And, and he said, well, what do you do? And, and my third friend said, well, I design and we build um, nuclear facilities. And, you know, my media friend made the point that, look, if one company has $300 million to build and design a nuclear facility and you have $100 million to do the same thing, it doesn't matter how you get there. You just need to get there, right? right. Uh, you can't make excuses for not having the, the resources to do it. Uh, but it all starts with scouting and player development, making the right decisions on a scouting standpoint uh, from the amateur draft to player acquisition. Certainly we have less room, less margin for error, and we have to minimize and, and reduce those mistakes. And, and when we sign players to long-term deals, we uh, can't, we, we better be right more often than not. So um, certainly that bore itself out in 2014, 2015, when we went to, to World Series back-to-back and, and won in 2015. So um, timing of, of players' ascension and matriculation into the major leagues is also very important. You want guys to peak certainly around the same times in their careers if you can. 
and uh, make acquisitions that really um, finish off the team to to make it a championship level team. So now that sounds like a lot of headaches to me when it comes to uh, revenues, uh, TV TV deals. Um, how does that work? Uh, I know the, the league obviously has probably a whole bunch of different. I was just noticing all the different. There's a, what, what is the TV deal like, and how does that affect? It? How does a small market team like you uh, get their your cut or your 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 revenue from from advertising and TV deals as opposed to one of the larger markets like LA or New York? Well, I think the the main point to emphasize is that the larger markets certainly can negotiate for higher dollar annual revenues from their local providers. Um, I believe the national deals are, are done by Major League Baseball and the revenues are, are shared accordingly. Uh, I'm not sure what that calculation is, but certainly our market here in Kansas City will generate the less dollars for the club in terms of just the, the broadcasting rights. Um, revenue for advertising, similarly, is going to be lower than L.A., Boston, New York. Um, but you know, that being said, it's it's a situation we're in, and it's the house we have, and, and that's what we have to do um, uh, with with those dollars. Now, are you involved in? I know that there obviously you're you're involved in, in in making roster moves and making decisions about that, and we talked a little bit about you know expanding the roster at certain times and, and moving people around. But are you involved in any of the management of of the minor league system? I am not. We have a, a player development uh, staff development director that um, is in charge of all those players and the staffing, uh, the movement of those players based on recommendations by the staff, our roving instructors, our coordinators. It's a, a very large uh, undertaking. And, um, <laughs> you know, those guys, I feel for the player development staff, especially the front office guys, just because um, your phone is never off. I mean, my phone's never off, but certainly with games at night in uh, for uh, affiliates. You know, there's always something, whether it's an injury, whether it's poor performance, whether uh, a player needs to be promoted or demoted. Um, that stuff takes time. That's, those types of decisions aren't taken lightly. Uh, but that being said, I, I, I feel we always feel for the player, player development staff in general, you know, being away from families, uh, your homes for, for six to eight months at a time uh, can be a grind. And um, certainly baseball and professional sports, working in sports is a lifestyle uh, that's not for uh, the faint of heart. But that being said, you know, it's, it's certainly got a lot of enjoyable aspects and um, a lot of rewarding times uh, or revolve around baseball. Well, it certainly sounds like there's a lot of fluidity, which kind of brings me to, uh, you know, when you're talking about budgeting and contracts and things like that, you know, the NBA has the, I think it's the G League now. Um, the NFL has right. the, you know, they have their um, their practice squads. Uh, the NHL mm -hmm. has, you know, their minor league, whatever their minor league system is, but none of them is as extensive and probably employs as many players as, as a major league baseball franchise. Um, how does that I would imagine that has to seriously complicate things when you're trying to figure out your budget. And I don't know, a guy in double A who you were expecting to have a good year ends up having a fantastic year and you have to make that decision 
maybe early August you bring him up, and, and of course, does that change his contract? Or what are the headaches when it comes to the managing managing people who can be called up or sent down and, and their contracts? Well, I think um, there are certainly a lot more players under our control than those other leagues. Um, but I think also when you look at the percentage of players that reach the highest level of those leagues, you know, certainly baseball has the lowest percentage. I don't know off the top of my head, but I think that's the reason why we have those numbers, right? And then we also, uh, baseball is a, a, a matriculation game where, you know, season to season, you're mostly going level to level. Uh, and the experience you gain hopefully should apply and help you um, uh, mature in your skills and compete at the next level. So um, it, when you're talking about adding players from the minor leagues, there's certain ramifications financially. Uh, so, for example, when you're talking about a player internally, he may be making uh, $700 a week at the AAA level. And when he's called up, he automatically goes on a major league contract, which has the minimums of $700,000 for an entire season at the major league level. And then at the minor league level, his rate of pay will increase as well to about $115,000 uh, over the course of a season if and when he's sent back out to the minor league. So, um, you know, those things are, are honestly, they're a cost of doing business. Um, players at the minimum don't impact your major league payroll as much as certainly signing a, a free agent or putting in a claim on uh, a player via waivers uh, that you can acquire that, that uh, has a higher salary. So those are the, the types of decisions that we, um, we question a little bit more or, or examine a little harder. Uh, but if you have uh, an injury or a need at the major league level, certainly it's the question of adding a player and, and and putting him on a major league contract is not really the question. The question is, is he going to stay on the major league roster? And if the answer is no, are we going to lose him to another team when we have to take him off the major league roster? You know, hopefully the answer is yes. He's a part of our future, part of uh, the present and the future. And he's going to be a Kansas City Royal for the long term. Uh, but that's not all. That's not necessarily the case all the time. Well, again, it sounds like a bunch of headaches and there's a lot of fluidity, but of course you love doing that. Now, I'm really curious um, what a typical workday is like for you during the season. Um, let's start off with you're at home. The team's playing at home. What is your, your workday like? My workday, uh, it depends if the team is at home or on the road. If we are at home uh, and have a night game, our, our night games usually are at 7 o'clock. Uh, our day games are usually at 1 o'clock. And on night games, I'll usually roll in here around 10 or 1030, um, do a lot of reading, get on the internet and read articles, make sure I'm, I'm as up to speed on the league as possible. Um, with our opposing team, we'll have advanced reports so I can go through those. Certainly there's time to go through scouting reports of opposing players. Um, and then I'll spend a lot of time also tweaking our payroll projections. That's part of my responsibility. Uh, look, into my crystal ball for, for 23, 24, 25. I basically try to, to have like a five-year uh, projection of where our payroll is going to go, uh, which takes into account raises for players based on their eligibility for salary arbitration if and when they're going to be eligible. Um, so 
that'll take up a bulk of my time. Um, also, this time of year is almost budget season, so setting the budget and coordinating with all the other departments for the following year. Uh, there's some changes coming, certainly, to Major League Baseball as uh, the minor league players may be unionizing. So we're looking a little bit into a black box, not knowing what's going to happen there, but trying to anticipate what costs is is uh, quite a bit of a challenge. Um, and then uh, as the afternoon comes, uh, there's certainly time to uh, watch our team take batting practice, watch our team take early work, whether it's infielders working out or a pitcher throwing an early sim game. Um, and that's usually around 4.30 to about 5.30. Um, after that, you know, there's some a lull between then and the game, which is at 7, grab a bite, uh, watch the game in our suite. And in our suite, it's typically um, – four or five baseball operations staff all sit in our general manager suite and we'll talk about the game, make observations, um, you know, deal with injuries or anticipated moves that we think may be coming. And then uh, games typically last about three hours. Uh, that takes it about 10 o'clock. And if it goes longer, you know, head home, be home around 10, 30, 11 o'clock. Now um, there are some, some extenuation circumstances that, I may need to go down to the clubhouse after the game to um, talk to the coaching staff about uh, potential moves, like if there was an injury, here are your options. Um, but typically, I'm, I'm out of here and, and home by 11, no later than 11.30. But that being said, it's you know, 12, 13-hour days uh, are the norm. Now, that is a heck of a day. I would imagine just with uh, it would make sense to assume that, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, you don't need to worry about packing yourself a lunch. Um, and you probably have, you know, if you're staying in shape, you're doing your fitness thing, there's probably you can work out and shower at the at the ballpark. Am I on the right track there? Well, um, if I'm going to work out when the team's home, that's that's uh, usually – there's usually not an opportunity to do that. I typically try to stay out of the clubhouse when the players get in there just because that's their space. And those guys usually roll in around 1 o'clock. Um, if I do something, you know, I'm not in shape like you are, Larry. I mean, geez, Louise, uh, I'll, uh, my, my workout time is typically if the team's out of town in the evenings, um, I'll work out a lot during the off season. And then in spring training, when I go down there, uh, in Arizona for about six weeks, starting in, uh, mid February, I'll really work out a lot just cause there's nothing else to do because my family's not there. Right. Uh, and then during the season, let's try to maintain that as much as possible. But um, it, you're right. it's it's hard to get in and work out when the team's in town. Uh, you're right. I don't have to pack a lunch. I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be able to, to eat in our clubhouse kitchen, and, and the food there is always uh, spectacular. So um, that's something that uh, um, I'm really spoiled by. Is it at all appropriate for – and has it, you ever had an opportunity to just sit in the dugout during a game? No, we're not allowed to do that. Only uniform staff and personnel are allowed to sit in the dugout during a game. So it's your manager, your coaching staff, your athletic trainers, your strength coach, interpreter if you have one, um, and your players. Now, if let's say uh, the team is playing away. Now, how often do you travel with the team? In prior years, I probably do about 20-some games on the road. 
um, as I've gotten a little older and my kids have gotten a little older, uh, I'm coaching my 10 year old's team the last couple of years. So I've been, been able to stay home a lot more. Um, this year I'll probably do eight to 15 games on the road. Um, funny story. The, the first trip that I went with the team this year was, uh, mid July to Toronto and, um, woke up uh, the, the day we were going to travel. We had a day game. Woke up with a, a sore throat. It was a one on a scale of one to ten. And my wife is my conscience. She said, you better test. So I came in, did a test, and was negative. Flew to Toronto. Um, next day, a cough started coming on. That was Thursday. And uh, Friday morning, I tested, and I was tested positive. Um, <laughs> so I was either going to be stuck in Toronto for for five days or I drove, uh, I could drive back and I chose to drive back to Kansas city from Toronto. So that was my, uh, road trip story of the year so far. Well, you know, you take a lot of risks doing that because if you start driving and then your symptoms get worse, you're really in a con- you could be in a world of trouble. Now, just one more on, I, I had one more question about, you know, the home yeah. and away thing. It, when the team does travel and you don't travel with them, you're at work. Do you stay at work and, and the staff all gathers, you know, around the TV and you guys watch there? How does that work? Now, typically, we um, if we're on the road, it's it's usually a nine to five type of, of situation, depending on what's going on uh, with your workloads. Um, if the game's at uh, seven o'clock or or later, uh, we'll, we'll be home by then and watching at home. But if we have a day game, uh, we have TVs around the offices here, so they're typically tuned to that channel, and, and uh, we'll be watching that as we're plugging away with our, our work day. Now, I want to go back real quick to something we were a little bit yeah. regarding something we were talking about before. Uh, what role, if any, does club and club management play in the, in the, in the collective bargaining agreement negotiations? Are you guys completely separate. You just literally have to sit and watch and it's between the players union uh, and the league. Correct. Um, I will say though, that prior to um, this collective bargaining negotiations starting, the league sent out probably a half a dozen staff um, to each of our sites in spring training. And we sat down with them. Our owner sat down with them and uh, we talked about the issues and their, uh, their requested feedback was what, what do you guys want from your club perspective? Uh, certainly, you know, we feel that being able to give our opinion on a lot of, uh, topics that would affect us in major ways um, was was nice to have some input. Um, and, you know, our perspective may be a lot different than a Yankee perspective or a Dodgers perspective, but certainly um, getting the league to um, being able to give that feedback to the league, I think was very, very important because there's a lot of issues uh, that were brought up and, and negotiated in this round of uh, collective bargaining negotiation. Now, how long does this current CBA they just they just signed last? Five years. So there's a, like a little bit of a lull. Everybody can take a break. Believe me, I know I've never been too heavily involved in my 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 shop, our union, but it's I know it's always a pain in the ass, and we don't have the best. Well, I won't go there. Um, <laughs> it's always complicated. Let's put it that way. It's it's always complicated. And and each side always thinks the other is 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 bargaining in bad faith. But um, I don't know if we've talked about this, but you know my love hate relationship with uh, with professional baseball. You know, growing up, you know we 
for, for our listeners, Jen and I played on the same Vienna Little League Yankees team together. I was a year year older than him, but uh, we got to play together. And, um, you know, growing up, my, my dad's parents were, were from Pittsburgh, and he was born there, although he didn't grow up there. But I, So I grew up as a Pittsburgh Pirates fan, although, you know, of course, we didn't have mm-hmm. the Nationals growing up in D.C. area back then, but we were all kind right. of Orioles fans because that was the closest team. But, you know, the Pirates had a good run uh, in the early 90s. And then when the 94 strike happened, I was absolutely devastated. And I wouldn't watch baseball after that. I, it took me about four or five years to get over being unbelievably, and, and I get it a lot better now because I, you know, I work at a union shop and I get it, but it's still a little, little, little mm-hmm. bit hard for me to understand people making seven figures plus uh, who need a union. But I, I understand that. By the time I got over it, and by the time I was done being mad about it, I had moved out here to New Mexico. It was 1998, 1999. The Pirates had sucked. Um, for a number of years, and at that time, we didn't have the, the the quite the baseball, you know, the sports packages we have with all the streaming and the and all this mm-hmm. stuff we have. And so, when you're a fan of a small market team that, that's you know 1,700 miles away and they're no good, and you never see them on TV, it was just kind of hard for me to get back in. And again, following a sport that plays 162 days a year, football is so much easier. Um, and you basically right. can watch for the most part one day your team plays. You can spend 15 15 20 minutes a day reading up on them, and and you're all caught up. Now, I don't know if you, um, you know, when you moved out of the Washington, D.C. area, but there's a there's a morning sports talk show, the Sports Junkies, who uh, mm-hmm. four guys, they actually came on the air in 1996, about two years before I moved away. And um, I started okay. listening to them, you know, on, on the Internet a couple of years ago. And now, you know, of course, they have a podcast. And a couple of years ago, it was 2019, I believe, when the Nats started off real bad and they were talking about, you know, First month of the season, they're gonna do they fire their manager? Do they not? They ended up firing their I think their pitching coach, and then whatever happened, they turned it around. So I actually learned a lot about the team just by listening to these guys every morning. And then I started to watch the postseason. I got into it, and you know uh, I was excited to see them win and excited for all the all the DC people who are who are Nats fans. And I said to myself, you know what, this is this is the year. I'm gonna I'm next spring training. I'm gonna. I'm going to start filing again. I'm going to, I'm going to pay attention to the pirates. I'm going to pay attention to the Nats. And then of course the pandemic hit. Yeah. Which leads me kind of to the next thing I wanted to ask you about how much of a nightmare. I mean, you didn't know what was going to happen and how does that, what kind of monkey wrench does that do do things? Was there a time when things just came to a stop? You like you would go to work and there wasn't anything to work on. I mean, talk, talk about, you know, February, March, April of 2020 and, and how, how your world got, all of our worlds got thrown for a loop. But as far as your job goes. Yeah, so it's funny you ask that because it's spring training of 2020. We were in Arizona, surprise Arizona. And we're probably only, what, a six-hour drive from you in New Mexico, right, Larry? I mean, Yeah, Las Cruces uh, in, in, in Phoenix, about six hours. You need to bring your family out uh, next year. Just drive out to spring training and, and come see me, and we'll spend time uh, around our team, and, and you can introduce your two girls, right? Uh, two little to, girls. To, to baseball in, in real life and um, hopefully um, create that level of the sport again. But you're right. I mean, March of February, March of 2020, certainly we um, – heard rumblings of, of this virus that was COVID-19 and nobody knew anything about it. I'm sure, uh, 
similar to you, you were Googling it and hearing stories and watching the news, but it, it didn't affect us um, directly because we didn't know anybody yet that had been uh, infected with a virus or, or gotten sick. Um, and then we got word from the league very quickly that, um, you know, something may be coming down the pipe in terms of, of stalling or, or um, putting a pin in the season. And when that happened, uh, we had a lot of logistics to get through. We had to get all our minor league players home. Um, we had to get all our major league players home. We had to figure out what we were going to do with all our Latin American players, both at the minor and major league level. You know, what was going to be the situation? How long was the work stoppage? We had no idea. Um, you know, there was uh, a possibility that the season was going to be lost. But then if we were going to come back quickly, right, which we had no idea if that was going to be true or not, but we had to try to plan for that. What were we going to do with our Latin players? Were we going to send them home to the Dominican, Venezuela, and uh, Puerto Rico, and, and Mexico, and not potentially be able to get them back in the country? That was a real possibility. So trying to figure that all out was um, a, a huge undertaking uh, with a lot of unknowns at the end of the day. Um, and then certainly when we were... Uh, <laughs> When we were in the pause, right, everything shut down from your local basketball to uh, Major League Baseball. Um, it, I got to spend a lot of time with my family. And quite frankly, we were lucky enough to, to have purchased a little uh, lake house at the Lake of the Ozarks the, the fall before. And I worked um, remotely from there a lot with my family and it was a blast because I typically don't have a lot of time with my family in the summer, but this was different, right? It was just me, my two kids, my wife, and, and we were just hanging out. Um, Blessing and, in disguise. And yeah, exactly. Um, and I think a lot of people could say that, uh, for their situation, but certainly when we were having calls constantly, zooms constantly, both on the major league side and the minor league side, and just trying to stay abreast of the situation, making sure that that, that guys' minds were still uh, uh, thinking about baseball. And, um, you know, when it ramped back up, the minor league season was lost. We had a alternate site, which was here in Kansas City, about 20 minutes away from, from our major league team. Um, but honestly, there was a lot of hoops we had to jump through. Uh, we had... 60 players to deal with, if I recall correctly. And there was uh, rules when you went from one site to the other. Um, you know, testing daily for players, for staff. It was every other day, I, I think, off the top of my head. So um, everybody got a little uncomfortable, but, you know, we, we made it through a 60-game season, and um, it, it changed the landscape of a lot of things in baseball, but it proved that, you know, we proved that it could have been could be done. And I think, um, I think we're better for the fact that we didn't have to cancel an entire season of, of major league baseball. Well, you, you um, made, we made it through. I mean, you know, those of us who survived the pandemic and, and unfortunately we all know somebody yeah. or a few people who haven't, it's interesting. Right. You were talking about a lot of the logistics with losing, you know, what you were doing with your, your international players and the minor league guys, you know, my wife and I are both very fortunate. We both work for local government. Our incomes were not affected uh, one iota 
um, with all the shutdowns. We did receive, we felt bad about receiving stimulus money. We did our best to put it back into small businesses, uh, you know, in the community um, as, as that those things became available. But you, you kind of piqued my interest. Um, you know, there's a big, obviously a big difference between uh, a major league contract and guys who are, you know, hand to mouth, uh, single A and double A. And, and they lost right. an entire season. Did, did your franchise or any other franchises, did you guys take care of them? I mean, what was a, were you able to help them out or was there any kind of effort? How did that all work? Yeah. So we paid our players, um, during that lost season in the minor leagues. And I think we were one of, I'm not sure how many, probably a little over more than a handful of clubs did that. Um, and the major league players, they were in a bind because their contracts, they didn't re- receive any allowances or, or, or pay during the shutdown, but they did get a uh, prorated 60-game pay when they returned based on their major league salaries. So a lot of the players lost a lot of money um, because they only received about a third of their what was originally going to be called for in their contract. Um, but you're right. The minor league players, you know, they're the ones that um, um, got in, uh, took in the short, so to speak. But uh, we we paid those guys, and and um, I think we set a, a really great example, you know, for for other organizations, and it was the right thing to do. Well, I'm glad you guys were able to do that. Now, I'm sure after 23 years with uh, Kansas City Royals, and then I think you did a couple years with uh, in the Atlanta Braves organization before that, you're probably used to it now, but. Talk a little bit about separating yourself as a baseball fan from a, ba- a professional uh, in, in that league. How does that? How do you find that balance? Is it, are you kind of numb to it at this point? Does it not really matter? How does that work? Sure, it, it's funny because um, I love seeing the game through my ten-year-old's eyes as much as I can, and um, I'm jaded to the to being around major league players as much as I am, uh, Hall of Famers, Franchise Hall of Famers, multiple-time All-Stars, right? Um, and when when we grew up you know, watching Major League Baseball, whether it's the Orioles or Pittsburgh Pirates, these players were um, almost like demigods, you know? Right. Uh, when, a, when a Major League player showed up at your Summer League game, I remember when Pete Shirk made All-Star team with the Cincinnati Reds, showed up to a Summer League game. I'm not sure why. Um, he was in Northern Virginia. I think he's from that area, but he showed up to one of our games and, and everybody was a buzz in the dugout. I'm like, gosh, we got a big leaguer here. Right. Um, and how are we going to go meet this guy? How are we going to go say hello? Um, and you know, spending a lot of time around these guys certainly come to realize just like in any business, these guys are, are normal guys, uh, normal human beings. They're just especially talented in, uh, baseball and um, my kid, my ten-year-old. I've got two. Uh, my older one loves baseball and he loves playing MLB the Show. And he's always telling me about this player and that player and his favorite player is Shohei Otani. And second favorite player is Bobby Wood Jr., who's a rookie on our team. And um, watching his reaction, spending time around some of these guys, especially if he's out with me in spring training, um, he'll, he'll be in awe about these guys, and he should be at that age, right? Um, and that's what's beautiful about any sport, any professional sport, right? Especially when you're a kid, if you can, if you can keep that joy and enjoyment and, um, sense of wonder about the game and these players, 
um, that means you're really falling in love with the sport. And, you know, certainly I hope to never lose that feeling. Um, but I'm a little jaded being well, <laughs> around these guys every day. I, let me ask you, because even though I don't watch, and you know, it's been many years since I paid really paid attention to Major League Baseball, the one thing I always geek out on is Little League World Series. And I would imagine that it would, it, would, it would seem to me that for somebody in your position, that might be a nice kind of escape where you're literally just watching baseball and there's no salaries and there's no egos and it's just kids. Do you get a chance to watch? I do. I do. I don't watch uh, the Little League World Series as much as I probably should, but certainly it's it's all over uh, MLB Network. Um, you know what's really gives me the goosebumps, especially last year being the first year there, was the Field of Dreams game. That that gave me goosebumps just because everybody who was a fan of baseball watched that movie. Um, it's not my favorite baseball movie, but it's certainly among the best baseball movies of all time, right? So watching that um, unfold on TV definitely gave me goosebumps. And I hope to take my kids up there one day and watch a game or, you know, play catch out there. I think it'd be, um, that, that's the romantic side of baseball, right? Why yep, it, it sure gives is. You all these feelings of, of, uh, playing catch with your, your dad or, and I hope one day my kids are going to have that, those same feelings about me. Yeah, and you know, I have a little bit of perspective. Um, I don't know if you've seen, you know, on Facebook. I for uh, seven, eight years now, I do uh, on the side. I work with the uh, state athletic commission. Uh, I've been a, a professional wrestling referee. Uh, I work as a as a site official uh, for professional boxing and mixed martial arts, and I've gotten to work with some, you know, some high level, very famous athletes. And it, it it is you do see things differently when you are in the locker room. And one, you know, one of the one of the responsibilities I have in my job is we monitor the hand wrapping. And we have to make sure it's done mm-hmm. right. And we have to sign off on it. We have to approve the gloves and inspect those. And um, it, it is interesting seeing um, what they look like behind when the lights aren't on uh, versus when they are on. You know, um, one of the things that uh, that always comes up at work, my lieutenant's office is right across the hall from me, and he's a big baseball mark. And uh, he played some college ball. His, he coaches his kids' teams. And, you know, one of the first things I do every morning is I pop my head in and we talk about whatever the sport is. And we, we talk about baseball mm-hmm. a lot. And, one thing that comes up a lot for some reason is, is uh, one of my just favorite things, and you'll remember this obviously growing up, is the George Brett Pine Tar incident. Um, yep. And I saw when researching, you know, you a little bit, doing some research for the episode, I noticed that George Brett actually still works for the for the franchise. He does. He does. And uh, George and I are pretty close. Um, he, he's a great guy. My kids call him Uncle George. Um, he, he's one of the, the best players that ever walk the earth, right? Maybe one of the best third basemen of all time. Uh, he's our only National Hall of Fame inductee. Um, and he's here. He, he was our hitting coach at the major league level for a certain period of time. But he, he spends a lot of time uh, with us in spring training around the club uh, during the regular season, just being a sounding board, um, not only because he was our most successful player in the, the history of the franchise, but I think having him around here, um, being accessible to our players, whether they're young players or veterans, I think it's very important. It also sends a signal um, to players in our organization um, that, you know, once you're a royal, you're always a royal. Um, and we also have a lot, a lot of former royals and former players among our ranks, whether it's coaching, scouting, uh, part of our front office. Uh, I think that's also very, very important to, to try to keep those guys involved in the game of baseball. And obviously they are uh, providing value for us as well to our organization. You know, one thing that I didn't know 
until really a couple of years ago because I don't know if you ever get like on Wikipedia and you just start following hyperlinks. Uh, and you go down rabbit holes, you know, for a couple of yeah, hours. That's a, that's a deep rabbit hole, yeah. I didn't I didn't know until a couple of years ago that they actually, later in that season, they reversed that decision and they gave him the home run. Um, yeah, right. And then they had to go back and complete the game, right? And I think one of their pitchers played in left field, and I think the Yankees thought it was a little bit of a farce. So uh, you got to look up that box score, how they completed it. Now, I, did, I did not remember that part. Now, I, one thing I wanted to ask you is, do you know where that bat is? Is it in the Hall of Fame? I think it's in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. But I will tell you that you probably need to look up um, a story about George because I think in the postseason, maybe the year or two years prior to uh, the pine tar incident, he had a horrible case of hemorrhoids. And, um, and you I'm have no problem talking about it, right? He's, no, I, I'm, I have no problem uh, speaking about this because he's told this story many times, <laughs> uh, is that um, he had the worst case of hemorrhoids. I believe he had to go to a doctor, and he said the, wor- the best thing that happened to him was the pine tar incident because up till that point, he was the hemorrhoids guy. <laughs> I, you know what? That's that was so long ago, and I, you know, of course, we didn't have the a level of access media-wise with the internet and everything for for, especially for a kid to have known about that. But I am going to have to go uh, look that up now. Um, <laughs> what's interesting, you know, also, Jin is and something I didn't know because, in all honesty, I don't I don't think I've seen you since we were about fourteen years old. But you actually right. received some accolades as a D three baseball player at University of Mary Washington. Correct. Correct. I did. Well, don't be don't be modest. Talk about that. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, I played baseball at uh, Mary Washington University or University of Mary Washington at the time. It was Mary Washington College, right? A little Division three school in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Um, my junior year, I was uh, uh, an All American as a center fielder. Um, uh, I still hold the still single season stolen base record at the the school. Um, and I forget what year, but I was inducted into the the school's Hall of Fame, Athletic Hall of Fame. So, how about that? You know, I'm actually kind of proud of proud of myself because I have a real bad habit. I think this is our 46th or 47th episode, and I I tend to go chronologically all the time, and I'm very proud of the fact that I've been able to to uh, to avoid that today. But um, now that you talk, we've talked about you being in college. Just talk a little bit about how you got into to working in in Major League Baseball because I know it was pretty much right after college. Yeah, you're right. Um, when I was about to graduate, uh, I met with my uh, academic advisor, Dr. Larry Pendle, who's one of my professors in, in uh, my business courses at Mary Washington. I was a uh, business administration major, and you know he's very pivotal in me being working in Major League Baseball today because I didn't know what I wanted to do like a lot of kids, you know, when they're juniors and seniors in college. I had no idea what I wanted to do, and um, you know he brought up baseball. And I really didn't know it was a, a career path that was um, uh, available. And it, this was before the internet. This was ninety ninety seven when I graduated, and he found an internship form that that fit what I wanted to do. That looked interesting to me, and it was an Atlanta Braves internship. And um, he helped me with the application process and sort of nudged me along the way. And um, it, when they called and said, hey, we would like to speak with you uh, on an interview. And I think it was maybe the, the second interview um, that they said, hey, um, Hank would like to speak with you. You can do it in person or over the phone. And I was like, um, 
Hank who? And, and they said, Hank Aaron. So I said, I will be there. Uh, tell me where and when to be in Atlanta, um, and I'll be there. So my one of my first interviews for a job um, was with Hank Aaron, and, and that was um, quite an experience, and it, it's a great story to tell. Um, but I got an internship with the Atlanta Braves, and I was their uh, baseball operations trainee. So I was in baseball operations, helped uh, the, the department move from uh, Fulton County Stadium to Turner Field because that was the year uh, they moved in that stadium. And spent a lot of time uh, just talking baseball with the scouting director, with the farm director, um, you know, other full-time staff there. And it was a great staff, John Schruholtz who is uh, going to be in the National Baseball Hall of Fame, was the general manager. Dean Taylor was the assistant general manager. He would later go on to be the general manager of the Milwaukee Brewers. Um, Dayton Moore was the assistant farm and scouting director. He um, would then, later on down the road, be the general manager of the Kansas City Royals and my boss. Um, Derek Ladnier was the farm director at the time with the Braves. He would be the scouting director here in Kansas City, and now he's a scouting director with Arizona Diamondbacks. So a lot of uh, guys uh, that um, uh, made a lot of impact at the major, major league level. Um, and Paul Snyder, legendary scouting director for the Atlanta Braves, uh, signed Andrew Jones, drafted Chipper Jones, um, Tom Glavin. Uh, it was just unbelievable spending time with those uh, baseball guys and being able to talk the game. So, well, that's a he- um, that's a heck of an introduction to to to, to your career, um, but it, maybe it was a good foreshadowing of, of things to come. You know, you did mention uh, a few minutes ago you were talking about Pete Shurek. Uh, Pete actually graduated from Marshall High School where I went. His brother Danny was in my class, um, and I I actually remember going back to that '94 strike year. He I believe was playing for Cincinnati at the time, and he had some clause in his contract where if he if he won 20 games there was going to be some big bonus or some guaranteed contract. And of course he was very much on pace to win 20 games and mid August, they, they went on strike, but you know, talking about Northern Virginia, people from Northern Virginia working in professional baseball, of course there's you. Um, and also uh, a, actually a high school classmate of Pete's Lonnie Goldberg um, who played yep. at my alma mater, George Mason, then probably played, I, I'm maybe exaggerating about 20 years in the minor leagues. Uh, is in the in the Kansas City Royals, Royals organization, right? Isn't he the director of uh, player personnel? Or I believe that's his, he's a vice president director of player personnel. He was the scouting director uh, for many years here. Um, I didn't know that that uh, you you uh, knew Lonnie, but um, yeah, Lonnie's. We've actually got a lot of people from Northern Virginia in our front office. Uh, JJ Piccolo, who's currently the general manager, he is a George Mason um, grad. And he actually coached me in summer league baseball when I was probably 20 years old. Dayton Moore, who was the general manager and now is the president of baseball operation, he, he went to uh, George Mason as well. Um, and he was the area scout in the Mid-Atlantic region for a couple of years there. And also Lonnie uh, Goldberg, as you mentioned. So a lot of Northern Virginia ties. Yeah, and you know, uh, Lonnie was five years older than me. You know, Marshall High School is a very small school. And, and if you played sports within, you know, four or five years, people did kind of know each other. I uh, can't say I knew him real well, but you know, one of one of my one of my two best friends in the world uh, was in the army for many years and got stationed in Yuma back in I want to say 
2002, and he got to town and was, I don't think his family was there yet, and he saw that they had a, a rookie league team. And so he just kind of pulled up to the stadium one day, and he, he wanted to kind of see what it was all about, and, and he saw some lady, and she's like, well, I don't know much to tell you, but the, the manager's over here, and lo and behold, it was Lonnie, and they knew each other really well. <laughs> Uh, and and he, didn't, he didn't know that Lonnie was the manager there. But, you know, I've mentioned this to you before. Um, for about, I want to say, 10 years um, in the house that I grew up in that my parents just sold about five or six years ago, our next-door neighbors um, had, his name was Lee Manfred, and his son Jack was a good 15, you know, mm-hmm. 13, 15 years younger than, than me. And I remember him, they were all, they all went to, the parents went to Notre Dame, Jack went to Notre Dame. And I remember my dad telling me, you know, Jack got some really neat summer internship with MLB because his uncle is some sort of executive there. Um, <laughs> and then, of course, a couple of years ago, Rob Manfred is the, uh, <laughs> the commissioner of Major League Baseball. So it really right. is, um, it is interesting to see um, how, many, how many connections from, from Vienna and from Northern Virginia you know, we are we are about to wrap up, Jen. I do want to mention, uh, not too long ago, I want to say uh, two years ago, probably during the pandemic, the beginning of the pandemic, uh, you appeared uh, and participated in a kind of a panel discussion on a special on ESPN uh, that addressed uh, what was kind of getting coming to light at the time, and that was uh, some hate crimes against people in the United States of, of Asian descent. Uh, now, your family, I don't right. know if you were born, I know your parents are from Malaysia. Um, have you been involved in any kind of anything like that since then have you have you uh lent your name or, or or been involved in 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 anything like that uh in in terms of negative experiences or are you talking about no as far as advocacy uh, just advocacy you know i have not been uh certainly uh i'm on our uh, i'm a chairperson of our dei uh, committee here in the Royals organization. Uh, funny to mention that because we have a uh, golf outing with the Kansas City uh, Asian American Chamber of Commerce next week that I'll be participating in. But um, yeah, you know, it's it's one of those things where it's um, heinous, right? The, all the stuff that that has happened since um, uh, the coronavirus, unfortunately, um, and you know, hopefully there's obviously no place in our society for anything like that, whether it's against Asian Americans or, or Italians or um, people of Jewish descent or African Americans. Right. So um, yeah, I think just an awareness um, that that stuff is going on. uh, Hopefully will will allow people to realize that it is going on and to be on the lookout for it and be, be advocates and supporters of minorities that, um, in a time when they may need the support. You know, uh, I, I will say I did. I watched that, and uh, I was a little bit disappointed that the the segment uh, where they had all you guys on, where everybody's in the little video, you got your little corner of the boxers, four or five boxes. Uh, it seemed, seemed like it was only one segment. I, I was kind of hoping for more. Now, before we go, some of the times I, if I, when I remember, I like to ask my guests uh, if they listen to podcasts and which ones they listen to. I actually. I'm looking at right now one that just started a couple weeks ago. Um, is absolutely amazing. Um, it's called Unwritten with Ron Darling and Jimmy Rollins, and they just kind of talk about the inside stuff with baseball. And it, what it reminds me of is my dad had this book. There was when we were kids, there was a guy who was a National League umpire, I believe, named Greg Luciano, uh, who wrote a book called Ball Four, and he, there, he wrote a couple follow-ups, and it was basically about being a major league umpire and starting off in the minor leagues and. 
it was just the most if you're if you're a baseball geek and if you enjoy the sport the, some of the inside stuff was really neat have you heard of this podcast unwritten with ron darling and jimmy rollins i have not i'll need to check it out um my my kid's been asking me about podcasts uh as it pertains to to baseball so maybe that's something i will uh We'll listen to it together. I, I think you'll probably appreciate it. I'm looking at it right now. I mean, the the the, the, the episodes that, that they've had, there's one on Trash Talk. There's one on Clubhouse Rules, uh, Player and Manager Relationships, uh, Rules of the Road. I mean, sign, there's one on Sign Stealing. Maybe, the you know, Houston Astros should listen to that one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, no, I wanted to mention that because I had, I, I had just I had thought about that question I usually ask. And then I was like, wait a second. I wonder if Jen has heard of Unwritten. It is a really well done, um, really well done podcast. Jen, um, I really, this is, again, some people are easier to interview than others, meaning, you know, you can, you have to force information out of them, and, and this was not the case. Uh, it was really good. This is a, a fantastic episode. I, I explained to you my, kind of my love-hate history with baseball, but uh, even though I don't watch Major League Baseball, I always say it's still my favorite sport, and if I could go out on any afternoon with 17 other of my friends and play a game, it's, it's baseball, no question. Um, and you know, we've, we've gone a little bit over what we intended to about 50 minutes, but it's been really enjoyable for me. Um, I want to thank you for being on the square peg podcast and, uh, good luck to you guys and all your off season acquisitions. It's coming up here pretty soon. Um, I know you guys aren't going to be in the postseason this year, but Hey, there's always next year, right? Well, I appreciate the time. Thanks for the invitation. And you always have an open invitation to come see me in Surprise, Arizona for spring training, and even here in Kansas City or even wherever we are on the road. Um, we don't get out near New Mexico, but the closest we'll be is in uh, the Phoenix area. Come out and see us and um, spend some time, catch up, have a beer, and watch baseball. Uh, you know, you don't have to ask me to do that twice. I'm definitely going to remember that come next February. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've Definitely. enjoyed this episode uh, with Kansas City Royals uh, general manager uh, of I, well, I forgot what it was, but he's he's a front office general manager type with the Kansas City Royals, Jin Wong. I enjoyed this episode. I hope everybody else did. Uh, you can find us on all the all the places you find podcasts and also on our homepage at LasCrucesToday.com. We'll see you guys later. Proudly produced by LasCrucesToday.com and Bravo Mike Communications. And now, here's a message from one of the sponsors who make this program possible. La Pignon is the only full-service sexual assault and child abuse response agency in southern New Mexico, located in Las Cruces and serving Doñana, Hidalgo, Sierra, and Luna counties. All services are bilingual, bicultural, and all free. La Pignon offers a 24-hour crisis hotline, connection to community resources, counseling services, medical services, victim compensation, prevention education, and their Kid Talk Warm Line for kids 17 and under. La Pignon's mission is to provide comprehensive services related to prevention, intervention of assault and abuse to individuals, families, and the community. Sexual assault affects one in four females and one in six males by the age of 18, so it is important we start by believing and educate our communities on how to help. As a community, we must encourage people to report child abuse, and even if you just suspect it, you can report it to local law enforcement or the Children, Youth, and Families Department. We must have the conversations about importance of consent. Yes means yes, and everything else means no. Remember, it starts with us, and we all play a role in preventing violence in our communities. La Pignon can be reached at 575-526-3437, or visit them online at lapignon.org. You can also find them on social media at La Pignon SARS on Instagram and Twitter, and La Pignon SARS on Facebook.